All right, I'm alive now. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've done a study for the last four weeks that we entitled Psalms of the Cross, and I figured today as we're celebrating communion that this would be a great conclusion to that. We'll go through this study today. Next week we'll be in the book of Philemon as we continue to go through the New Testament epistles and then we will be moving into our celebration of the resurrection. It's already. Tomorrow, as I said, is the first day of spring. Praise God. For in 1 Corinthians, I'll be reading from verses 16 through, I think, 21. And again, just taking this time as the Lord had intended that we would truly contemplate communion and what communion is and what communion means. And so really what I intend this to be is kind of an epilogue to our series on the studies of the cross and what occurred upon the cross. Epilogue is just simply a conclusion. It's the closing part of a discourse in which principal matters are renewed, and that's what I want to do is renew some of the principal points from the past few studies and see and be reminded of the impact of them in our lives. So just as truly as we looked at the crucifixion of Christ and we saw that behind-the-scenes conversation between the Son and the Father, and as we looked at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He is our shepherd, and then the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ as He came to dwell in our lives, we're now going to look at the communion. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16-17, through 17, the Lord speaks, or Paul, through the Apostle Paul, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all take of that one bread. Now, I don't, you may have heard the term for the communion meal. Now, when he's speaking of the cup, we use real little cups, probably speaking of a chalice then. It's of the wine, we use juice. But he's speaking of this cup, and he's referring to this cup as a cup of blessing. And it's one of the things I pray that you consider as you're holding on to your cup, the cup of blessing and really what that means. Now, in Matthew 26, verses 27 through 28, it says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's that cup of blessing that no longer is salvation by the works of the flesh, but by the grace of God. That it's through the grace of God that we are able to enter into the throne room of God. Now, to understand this, you must first be reminded of the cup that the Lord was to drink of before the cup of blessing could truly be a cup of blessing. 
In Matthew 26, 42, it says again a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So first, in order for us to be able to drink of that cup of blessing, the Lord Jesus Christ had a first drink of that cup of judgment. He had to pay the price for our sins in order for us to realize, know, and even have available the grace of God to mankind. And so it was the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was in that Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying, and it was that point that he was even sweating blood because there's his troubled heart because the sins of the world are about to come upon absolute purity. But it was the only way that the sinful nature of mankind could be dealt with. And so what Jesus is doing, he's partaking of this judgment as he was about to go upon the cross. And as he took upon that judgment upon the cross, he paid that price. And again, have you ever put, been put in a position that you had a debt that you were just never going to be able to pay off? And by some way, you were able to finally put that debt to rest? Well, that's what we realize in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he took that upon himself, again, absolute perfection, I was part of that. He, he took upon Mike's sins upon him and your sins upon him. And there's the necessity to make this personal. Now, you could not drink from that cup of judgment, not and survive. There's many, those who refuse the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who basically partake of that cup of judgment. And they, for all eternity, will be separated from their God. But those, because Christ has partaken of that cup of judgment, now we can partake of this cup of blessing. Blood. Blood signifies the sacrificial death, in this particular case, of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. That which was required, blood, the shedding of blood, for the forgiveness of sins. When we drink the wine, when we drink the juice today as Christians, we are presenting ourselves as being a united family in Christ. We are drinking, well, it's the same drink. It's, we're consuming of that sacrificial death of Christ that has caused us to be these new creations in Christ. And just as the person over there is partaking of that, the person over here is partaking of that cup, and we do so in unify, in unification. We are truly a family, and this is the ultimate in a family meal. Now, because of who I've been born to be, I gathered together for a meal on Friday night. What am I talking about? Remember what Friday was? Who remembers what Friday was? Bertie. It was St. Patrick's Day. And my last name is Yersioli, so you say, how does that work? Well, my mother's fully Irish, so I'm half Italian and half Irish. And it's just been kind of a family tradition that we celebrate St. Patrick's Day through corned beef and cabbage. And that's really good. It's really good. I look forward to it every year. Every St. Patrick's Day, my father would bring my mother flowers and just kind of make a thing of it. And so we gathered together and we sat together as a family. We partaken, we partook as a family just based upon who we are. I mean, there's no salvation and no religious connotations in it whatsoever, but this is a thing that you naturally do. For holidays, you gather together and you dine with family. You go out with friends and all of these things. Well, how much more so here today as we celebrate the communion meal, are we celebrating an absolute unity based upon 
Well, that which what symbolizes that we hold in our hands symbolizes the blood of Christ, that he drank of that cup of judgment. Now today, you have the privilege of partaking of that cup of grace, that cup of joy, that cup of love, that cup of blessing. Now, you're not saved because you're partaking of it, but because you're saved, you partake of it. Why? Because of life. We get so busy and bogged down in our lives. We get so overwhelmed. We've got all the news and the political landscape and the terrorists and all of these things, and just the difficulty of earning a living. And then we bring kids into the equation, and we've got all of these things that can be so overwhelming. Every once in a while, even in the midst of the Bible studies that we give, we need to just kind of stop. We need to be connected back to first love. We need to be reminded, even of the day that you were saved, the day that Christ came into your life, and you knew that this was an act of God, that God was meeting you where you were at, and just how good that he was, that as I hold this juice in my hand, I'm understanding this connection of, of the blood, of the price paid for salvation, and the desire that God had that I would be able to go through the gates of heaven and the magnitude of the price that was paid for that to be able to happen. And, and so many times we can become so overwhelmed and we can come down upon ourselves or others, but you were so, such valued in the eyes of God that he sent his son praying, well, not that he prayed, but we pray that we would, we would see salvation, and as we have, then that we would see the salvation in the souls of others that what God has done in our life would be what God does through our lives. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, last part of verse 16 and 17, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Bread, it's the communion of the physical body of Christ. It's not the physical body of Christ, but it's a representative of the representation of the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder, if there's no body, there's no blood. If there's no blood, there's no bond with our God. And so God had to come in such a way that mankind would be able to relate because throughout all of the Old Testament, mankind wasn't making the connection. Matter of fact, there was priests that were ordained by God, but what did they do? They perverted the priesthood, and they became almost as God in the sight of the people. So God sent forth his Son so that we would know and understand the magnitude of who God is. He's the image of the invisible God. And so God, God is the only one who could pay the price. So God, because of the great love with which he had for us, he became flesh. It's called incarnation of Jesus Christ. He became flesh and he appeared and he walked amongst men. And again, you need to see the profound effect that this had upon the Apostle John. Apostle John in 1 John, he's ministering to Gnostics. Gnostics are people who believe that they can make their salvation come to pass through knowledge and understanding. And John starts out his epistle in chapter 1. He says, that which was from the beginning... And you can take that term and you can look at the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1 and bring it back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It relates to God who created all. That which was from the beginning, and he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John said, 
I lived with him for three years. Uh, on that last night, uh, on the night that he instituted the communion meal, John could say, I-, I had my head on his chest, and I looked up into the eyes of glory. I, I had this personal, hands-on relationship, and-, and it's not that he had, it's that he continues to have even to that day. In verse 2, the life was manifest, or it was revealed to us, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life with which was with the Father and was manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Because the point is, through intellect, if you're going to be a Gnostic, if you're going to try and achieve some sort of holiness or relationship through human intellect, you're going to fall short and you're going to lose your joy. But John says, that's not how it happens. We saw him. We experienced him. And then somebody else, through John's ministry, they saw him, not physically, but through the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they experienced him, and they told somebody else, And they told somebody else until we have a gathering together here today of remembrance on that day that you experienced the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and understood that he came for the purpose of saving your soul. This speaks of his earthliness and his incarnation. To break bread is to have everybody eat off of that same loaf and to receive the same nutrients. Some restaurants that you go to, you're sitting together and you break bread. They stick a loaf in front of you. We usually will cut it with a knife. Some of us who are less refined may rip a hunk off but, or maybe just gnaw on the loaf and pass it around. But the idea is it's from the same source. We have the same Jesus Christ, the same blood that, that bled for you, the same blood that flowed for you. It flowed for me as well. There's nobody that came in here, and I mean into Christianity, based upon who they are or what they were able to do. It's all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified for us. And again, we can so easily get past that, even in our studies, even in our studies, even in the Word of God. We can so forget of just the magnitude of this great love with which He has for me. Everything else is learning as far as icing on the cake. It's learning and growth in who he is, but never get past that first day of your salvation. And what I mean get past of it, think of your something more because of what you've been able to glean or learn. We need to grow, no doubt, but it was all about how God met you in a sinful state and how he brought you into his kingdom. And the same God that brought you in is the same God that is able to keep you. As partakers in this meal, we proclaim unity with Christ knowing that we are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where true unity within the body of Christ is going to come from. Because as not any of us earned our way in, we all came in through faith, by grace, through faith. And that being the case, we need to see, we need to understand how equal we all are. God will never love you any more than he did on the day that you were saved. You can't cause God to love you anymore. God does not love any person more in this room than he loves you. You need to understand that. He doesn't love me more than he loves anybody else in this church, and he doesn't love you more than he loves me. It's the love of God that has been lavished upon all of mankind. 
We're told that in 1 John chapter 3, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. And that word lavished, it means it has the, the, the idea of, of just being drenched in the love of God, being saturated in the love of God. And it's to the degree that there's just no more that you would be able to take, no more that it would be able to have any more, any more effect within your life. So again, everything that God has available to me is there. And it's there for, for my taking, and it's there for my receiving. And so we've got to understand that, that we are truly one in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but the body, singular, is many members. And so once again, we come to that place where everybody in the body, in this particular body, everybody needs to be valued regardless of what your function is in that body. Anything goes askew, then the body is not all that it could be. And so if you're a born-again believer, as I've said so many times, God has given you a spiritual gift. He's given you some sort of supernatural ability, ability beyond your ability through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. The purpose of that spiritual gift is that you would exercise that spiritual gifting, that you would find a way in the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. And again, regardless of however it is that you would rejoice and that you would exercise it. And as you are exercising that spiritual gifting, then the body is all that it can be. It's strong and it's sure and it's going to be moving forward. And again, look at one of the most insignificant parts of your body. What if after service, somebody pulled your little toenail off? that's going to incapacitate your whole body for probably a week or so. And you would think it'd be so insignificant, but every part plays a purpose. I'm not calling you a little toenail, but you get my point. I mean, we need to be humble, but not to the point that we discount the power of God working in us and through us. And I rejoice. We have people that show up here during the week to clean the church. People that show up during the week to clean the toilets and these things, it's part of their spiritual gifting. The people during the week that come when nobody else is watching and nobody else is seeing just simply because they know that this is what God has called them to do. And so really what you need to consider is what is your spiritual gift and how does it fit in with the vision that God has for this church today? There's a place for everybody. Matter of fact, there's a desire for everybody. So because of the crucifixion, because of the resurrection and the ascension, today we celebrate communion. But there is also to be an assimilation here. Because of the sins of the world, Christ was crucified. Because of our sinful nature, we were destined to die. Because sin was to have hold over the Lord, and he was re but he was resurrected from the dead. Because we have been set free from sin, we too will be brought back to life. So there's the surety of the day of my death, but there's also the surety of the day of my resurrection. Because sin was conquered, Christ ascended into the throne room of the Father. 
But because he was conquered our sin, for our sins, we too will ascend into the throne room of our Father. And we're even told that we can go boldly into that throne room. Because as far as being a sinner, when you come in to absolute purity, your sinful state is going to be magnified. I mean, if there was no Christ, if you were invited into the throne room of God, it's impossible, but if you were, apart from Jesus Christ, you would see the stain upon your life. And the only way that you can boldly go into the throne room of God, and now this is a reality, is for you to be washed completely clean, perfectly pure, and to be able to go in as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing thing that God has chosen to do. He has chosen to remember our sins no more. Again, the Bible says that he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. Do you understand the magnitude to which God has forgiven you of your sins? And so many times we can look at it and say, okay, he, he forgave me of my sins, but it, wasn't, it was at a point in time that that occurred, but not just for that point in time. This is all of the sins of your past, and it's all of the sins of your future. And so when you come to the realization of what God has done on that day of your salvation, as you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 on the day of our salvation, it's not that I'm not going to sin anymore, but I'm not going to be able to sin freely anymore. There's going to be that conviction. And it's all part of the... the the purpose of God that I would understand and know the day of my salvation, both as I'm seeking after him and maybe even as I am not seeking after him. Never being able to find peace apart from Christ, but understanding that the knowledge and the joy of my relationship with God is only a repentance away. Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son he was definitely the son of the father. There was no doubt about that in the story. But what did he do? He insulted the father. He wanted his inheritance, and it's almost as if he's saying, Dad, I, I don't care if you're even dead. Just give me what is due for me, and I'm going to move on. And we know he got his inheritance, and he went and he wasted it all to such a degree that he found himself in the, in the mud pen eating the pig pods. And as he was there, the scripture tells us he came to himself. There was that conviction that came over his life, and he realized, even my father's servants have it better than this. And when he came back to the father, why did the father run to him? Yeah, because he was coming back, but also the father saw the change of heart. He saw the repentant spirit of this young man, understanding that this young man desires to come back into the family and once again have this relationship with me. It didn't matter that the son basically told him, well, I, you're dead to me, Dad. It didn't matter that he took those riches and wasted him. The father just wanted the child to come back to where he was. And so, if you're away from Christ today, God's waiting. God's waiting. Maybe he's allowed you to eat a few pig pods or to, 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 to languish in the pig slop, but either way, he's waiting for you to come to yourself and to be able to celebrate this communion meal, understand the necessity for repentance. It's the doctrine that both John the Baptist came preaching, it's the doctrine that Jesus Christ came preaching, and it's the doctrine that we preach today, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. is to deal with the sins so that we can come before Christ, 
Christ cast them all as far as the east is from the west, and so Christ cast them off. You ought not to be holding on to them even yourself. And so because he conquered our sins, we too will ascend into the throne room of our Father. This speaks of that place that Christ went and prepared for us in his Father's house where many mansions or many dwelling places. So we looked at the Psalms of the cross and we saw our past. We saw the communion in the communion meal that we celebrate today, our present. But also we've got to be reminded because it's such an integral part of the communion meal is our future. You need to have joy in your future. You look out into the world and there's no hope in this world out there apart from Christ. Everything's falling apart out there. But I've been told in the scripture that these things are going to happen. I've even been told not to be surprised when they do. But my future is in the Lord. And that's a big part of this celebration today is we're celebrating the future that you have in Jesus Christ. And I can't say that strongly enough. Jesus, on the night before he was going to die, it's one of these things he recognized. He told them in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you have a troubled heart today? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Our place is not here on earth. Our place is in the presence of God. God uses us for a time. God uses us to reflect what he's able to do in a life. God God will will show you what he's able to do in a person that was immersed in in religion and was going through these Christless practices. And I say Christless because they were in my heart. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but if I just thought, if I just go through the process, then hopefully I'm right with God. What, well, a person who maybe society would consider to be a good person, a man who worked hard, was raising his family, but again, didn't know Jesus Christ. But then he left me here so that there can be that change, that day of my salvation that cemented it in my heart, but also could be partaken of by others who see what God is able to do. If you're a born-again believer here today, you have a testimony. You have a testimony of what Christ has done in your life. Hold that as value because there's somebody else like you who has yet to receive Jesus Christ and needs to know what he's able to do in the life of somebody who just simply submits their life to them. Turn over in your Bible to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. speaking of the future ramifications of this meal that we celebrate. This is Matthew's account of the Last Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broken, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom or in my Father's house. What we see in verse 29 is is this new cup, this future cup that we are going to be able to take up with him. There's the cup of judgment. Christ took that up 2,000 years ago. There's the cup of blessings. We continue to take that up every time we celebrate communion as a reminder. 
but there is this future cup. Again, Jesus said in verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you. So it speaks of some sort of future cup that we're going to take up with Christ. And really what this is, this is the cup that is to be taken in fulfillment of the promises of Christ. The promises that, uh, of, of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, this is when we're able to sit with Christ and enjoy that cup and look back and realize what he said upon the cross, that it's truly finished. It's truly finished and all has been accomplished even as the last unbeliever has come to faith in Christ. Now, in the Jewish Passover feast, there are four cups that were to be drunk. Each one was in response to a promise that is stated in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. It says, therefore, this is Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will rescue you from their bondage. And so God has given us that promise that he is going to rescue us from the world and the claws of the world. Then he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will redeem you. I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price for you because it's no good just to be, just to be saved or, or well, delivered from the world. We've also got to come into that relationship with God. And so he says, I'm going to bring you out, but I'm also going to bring you in. I'm going to bring you in to that relationship. Thirdly, I will take you as my people. And he's saying, you're going to be mine. I'm going to put my name upon you. Now remember, this Passover meal, there's four cups. Each one is being taken in response to these promises being made. And then he says, and I will be your God then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And this is one that carries this future connotation that as we celebrate it with Jesus Christ, that we truly understand and know the fulfillment of everything that he has promised us. Being able to look back and to truly understand and know the goodness of God. Hasn't God been good in your life to today, up to this point? Hasn't God provided everything that you needed? Maybe not everything you wanted, but everything that you've needed up to this point. My wife and I were talking about a particular situation, and she just told me, and so true, hasn't God always provided for us? And it's true. God's allowed us to go to some pretty deep places, some pretty hard times, but every single time, God has been faithful. God will always be faithful, and there will never be a time when God is not faithful. And he'll be, a faith, he'll be just as faithful, especially at that time when we close our eyes here in this world and we're brought back to that eternal life, or brought into that eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so again, I, as I get all of these, the, these little pictures of faithfulness of God, it all accumulates in the day that I'm able to partake of that cup, that last cup in the presence of the Lord as we do so together. So what we have because of the Lord's death, his resurrection, his ascension, is great anticipation. Go ahead now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. 
his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and a great anticipation. Paul previously in chapter 15, he was speaking of the resurrection, and he spoke if Christ was not resurrected from the dead, then he as a preacher of the gospel would be the most pitiful, and he was looking just a little snapshot of life if Christ was not resurrected. But then in verse 20 he says, but now... Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is why the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we are told the firstborn is the Lord. The firstborn male was to be dedicated to the Lord. If you had an animal, you were to sacrifice that firstborn male and give it to the Lord. If you and your wife had a child and that firstborn male, well, you were to take an animal and sacrifice in place of the male, but you were to dedicate that male to the Lord because there was a, a, a picture of purity that was to be made, maintained because of Christ, but not also because of Christ, but also because of, of us, because Christ was that first fruits, there was going to be so many more. In verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become. To become here means at the exact time of his resurrection, he became the first ever to be resurrected from the dead. Now this is in context, once again, to the first fruits of a harvest or the first um, male that was to be born. He became the first, first fruits, the first of many more to come. And so what I see as far as that resurrection of the, from the dead of Jesus Christ, what we're going to be celebrating here in even less than a month is not just the fact that he was resurrected, but the proof of that. I mean, we're told in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into our hearts. We're studying on Thursday night in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's how we've been created with the knowledge that there is a future. There is some sort of life after death. Christ became the first to be resurrected from the dead. Now you can make a case from Scripture to refute this, and people have, and just kind of a couple of, of thoughts, just in case you ever get into this argument, such as in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah, as he healed or brought back to life the son of the widow, 2 Kings 4, Elisha, he brought back the Shulamite's son. Luke chapter 7, Jesus and the widow's son. Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter. And in John 11, Jesus and Lazarus. But these can be explained two ways. First is in John chapter 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard that, that Lazarus did, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so any person that has been brought back to life in the Old Testament or before Christ was even in the New Testament was a dispensation that God used to glorify himself to make his point that he has power over both life and death and secondly those who were raised from the dead they all went on to die none of those people had eternal life until after they died and then were permanently resurrected from the dead you got Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, and a big part of why that happened was, and so his disciples could see that it, these, Moses and Elijah, they still exist. 
Moses died, very clear about that in the scriptures, but he still exists. And so it was essential to know that because the main teaching of the uh, Sadducees, they didn't believe in life after death, but it was important to be able to understand that. Verse 20, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a picture of the righteous who have died, the believers, and they're usually believers who have died before the point that is being made in scriptures. For our learning today, it would be anybody who is a believer who died before us. See, the way that goes is, is that all of mankind, up until the rapture of the church, is going to die one day or another. Even the born-again believer is going to die. What happens at death? Well, the Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so you have this person, they believer, they, they pass on. Absent from the body, because the body is still there with us, but to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. What presence is that, that they're in there with Jesus Christ? We know that is a physical presence, but it's in a spiritual sense. I can't explain it any more than that because the Bible doesn't explain it any more than that. But they are in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, we're told in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when Christ comes back, when the rapture of the church is going to happen, the dead in Christ will rise first. And so you have this person who's died, let's say he died a year before the rapture, He's absent from the body, his body's still here, but he's present with the Lord. Body gets buried, and now Jesus Christ is coming. And so there's a progression here. The dead in Christ will rise first. They're going to be reunited with their physical body. It's going to be a physical body, again, in a spiritual sense, in that it's going to be able to dwell in the presence of a holy God. But no longer is sin going to have any effect over it. And so I imagine all this is going to happen in nanoseconds, but... The dead in Christ will rise first. They will be reunited with their bodies. But then those who are alive when Christ comes for the rapture of the church, we're not going to die and then be, we're just going to be instantly changed or translated. We're going to have that instantaneous change and then we are going to be with the Lord as well. And then we know from then on, then the great tribulation is going to start. But because of Christ, because of his resurrection, because of the teachings that we have in the scriptures, there's a surety to all of this. Because barring the rapture, everybody is going to die. And it was a false teaching back in the church that was at Thessalonica that people are dying. What's going on? Where's Christ in all of this? See, the surety that we are to have is that death, that it's not just a going away, but it's simply a passing. Precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of the saints. It's something that God plans for, and it's something that, well, it brings joy to the heart of the Lord as his saints come unto him. Verses 21 and 22, For since by man death came, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So it comes down to, who do you identify with? If you identify with the first Adam, the Adam of Genesis, well, this is a universal identification that all die. If you identify with Jesus Christ, this is an exclusive identification. But either way, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life, that's eternal life. Death is eternal 
dying. See, either way, all of humanity, and a lot of times we don't think of it this way, but when it comes to the resurrection, everybody gets resurrected. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you have the believer who is resurrected to eternal life. Unfortunately, you have the unbeliever who is resurrected unto eternal death. What's eternal death? That's eternity apart from the presence of God. That's why hell is described as a dark place, yet a place with fire. And when it says fire, it's more of a burning, and it's more of a brimstone, which is just kind of a, an ascetic. It's actually on the opposite scale of, of acid. But nonetheless, it's just, a, it's just a melting away for all of eternity in outer darkness. Isn't it an amazing thing when you're in just complete darkness? There's just that fear that exists there. You know, your wife wakes you up in the middle of the night. What was that noise? And I, I don't know. There's some noise out there. Somebody, and you go walking out there. It's in the dark. You don't want to turn the light on. And, and there's just that element of fear. There, there's just that, that way that God has created us that we would not dwell in the dark, but that we would come into God's marvelous light. And so we do not know when the completion of the harvest is, but we do know the order. Christ was the first, first of many more to come. Old Testament saints were the first to be brought in, those who believe in the coming Messiah and the promises that God gave. Then secondly, the church that was asleep. And then there is the rapture. Then there's the tribulation saints. Then the millennial saints. But then there's going to be the resurrection of those who are going to die for all eternity after they are judged by God after they stand before the great white throne. John chapter 5, verse 29, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the condemned. And so, as we're going to partake of this communion meal, my encouragement for you today is, is just don't take it in routine. Just, just don't hold a little plastic cup filled with grape juice and a little hunk of bread in your hand and just listen to the rest of what I have to say and, and, and chug it down. The idea here is these things, I believe to such a degree that as I consume them, they become part of who I am. I can't remember the man's name, but the one they're considering for the Supreme Court, they're concerned about his religious beliefs. They're concerned that his religious beliefs are going to make an impact on the decisions that he makes. I got news for them. Everything that we believe will have an impact on the decisions that we make. Because you being a Christian defines who you are, the way you think, and the worldview that you have. And this is just a reminder of that. I, I think the way I think, I believe the way that I believe, and I have the worldview, I view the world through biblical eyes because of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. This meal... This meal is to be a celebration because it's a remembrance. It's a remembrance of how the love of God not only was displayed to you, but the impact that the love of God has for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the mindset is Christ is there, he's just about to be crucified, and he's given thanks. He's given thanks, in essence, for his death because he's understanding that this is what has opened the gates of heaven. You need to understand that it's that death that has opened the gates of heaven to you. You never could have climbed over, you never could have pushed him open, but Christ through his death opened so that we would all, all who would believe, would be received. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What would be an unworthy manner? Well, I think the one that we need to be concerned about here today is to partake of this meal but not have the belief. Is not believing in who Jesus Christ biblically is. Is not believing that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. We've got to go on record. There has to be that outward expression of belief that is within our lives. Because he's saying here, this is in verse 27, that this is to eat and drink judgment unto yourself. This is to say, I, I don't believe, although I recognize that Christ has come. And so again, we've got to understand the seriousness of this. We've got to examine our hearts. We've got to be real with ourselves here today. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for this time that you have given us to celebrate this communion meal. And I pray, Father, that as we celebrate it, that we would truly look back and remember the goodness, Father, the goodness of, of your heart that displayed the love of mankind upon the cross. We'd also be reminded, Lord, of the resurrection of our Lord, that the Lord was the first of so many more to come. That, Lord, we would realize in our future that we can have a boldness, Lord, of entering into your throne room, becoming part, Father, of your heavenly choir. But also realize, Lord, the magnitude of the effect of what this is able to have today. And I pray, Father, that through this meal, we would truly be experiencing unity in you. The remembrance, Father, of the day of our salvation and the expectation of the day of our ascension. But as for today, we've been resurrected to this new and glorious life. I pray that we would conduct our lives, Father, as we are your children. And so once again, Father, there's a warning at the end of the scriptures that I read. And Lord, we need to take this to heart. And I just pray, Father, if there's anybody here that would partake of an unworthy manner, that you would be speaking to their heart even right now. That they would understand that if they confess you, if they confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they would be saved. And Lord, everybody that you called, you did so in an outward manner. And so, church, right now, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, we're going to give an opportunity an opportunity that everybody would consider themselves in the light of this communion meal. And if there's anybody here today that would feel that they would be partaking of this meal in an unworthy manner, just raise your hand and allow me to pray for you. Is there anybody here today that you just need that cleansing from Christ because you just know that if you partook of this, it would be in an unworthy manner? Is there anybody here today? Just, just lift your hand up. Again, this is spirit of repentance. I see your hands that are off to my left. I see yours here in the front. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? You're not lifting it to me. You're not lifting it to us. You're lifting it to the Lord. If anybody's in the overflow, lift your hands. 
You're so boldly. I see your hand off to my left. Is there anybody else? I see your hand here before me. Anybody else? This is between you and the Lord. If the Lord is calling you and impressing this upon your heart, just submit yourself to the Lord. Is there anybody? Again, if you're in the overflow, just lift your hands to God. Father, you've seen the hands that have gone up before you, Lord, and we just praise you, Father, that you have spoken to the hearts of the people here. And Lord, that being the case, if we have cleansed our hearts before you, I pray, Father, that this communion meal would be true enjoyment, that we would hold these elements in our hands and we would realize that Christ has told us to partake of this meal so that we would never forget, that we would never forget that he came, Lord, that, Lord, you came, you came in a way that we are able to relate to, that we are able to understand. Father, that your blood was spilled so that our sins could be washed away, and, Lord, we could have that glorious entrance into all eternity. And so, Father, we just thank you for the joy that we're able to have here this morning. I pray that you would bless us as this family comes together for the purpose of celebrating your meal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship teams.